0: Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, we will be speaking with David Wong, MD, an assistant professor of neurology in the Division of Neurocritical Care and Emergency Neurology at the Yale School of Medicine and a neurointensivist at the Yale New Haven Hospital. Dr. Wong and his team are using the FS-ICU tool which is an extensively validated in- survey instrument for assessing family satisfaction with general ICU care and shared decision making. Early next year, Dr. Wang will be presenting a society webcast showcasing the FSICU tool and some pilot data gathered from his neuro ICU. He is with us today to share about his unit's motivation and experience in setting up a family satisfaction research initiative. This podcast is supported by Project Dispatch, a society initiative in disseminating patient-centered outcomes research to healthcare professionals, supported by AHRQ. Resources related to patient-centered outcomes, including prior webcasts, are available at www.sccm.org projectdispatch, one word. In his presentation, Dr. Wong will discuss what prompted the Yale Neuro ICU to begin this effort, what has been learned so far, and what new projects the data has generated. He will also discuss the logistics of using the FS ICU instrument and cost-effective strategies for continuous data gathering on family satisfaction. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Wong.
1: Thank you, Mike. I just wanted to take this opportunity up front to thank. You and the society, uh, as well as Project Dispatch, uh, for this opportunity, uh, especially to share single standard research experience at Yale with the society listenership as a whole. Uh, we are very excited and we appreciate it.
0: Great, and thank you. I, you know, this topic is near and dear to my heart uh, as well, and I've been uh, thinking about using the FSICU tool in our ICU, so I'm really looking forward to our conversation here. Can you tell us a little bit about how you and your group at Yale became interested in family satisfaction research?
1: Sure, I'd love to. So my personal story uh, at Yale began last year. I I came on faculty uh, as a new neurointensivist uh, starting in the summer of 2012 and before that I did my uh, neurology residency and neurocritical care fellowship at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital and the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. And it was really um, during my time as a resident and and definitely my time as a fellow where I really began to learn just how central family meetings are to the day-to-day life of a typical intensivist and certainly a neuro-intensivist. It just seemed that fellow in service, working with the attendings, it seemed like, you know, the biggest things on the to-do list uh, every day for um, our patients were quite honestly basically updating the families and trying to make decisions, sometimes small, sometimes big, but Definitely shared decision with uh, folks uh, about about their loved ones who are admitted. It really sort of struck me uh, as a trainee in Boston just how central that was to just the day-to-day practice of critical care and neurocritical care. And I have to give quite a bit of credit to um, some of my research mentors as a critical care fellow, Dr. Jonathan Roseanne, who's a neurointensive at Mass General, and Dr. Perrin Cobb, who is a a surgical intensivist. Both gave me opportunities to develop this interest in a research fashion while I was a trainee. One of the things that we became interested in as a group, the neuro ICU in conjunction with the medical ICU and surgical ICU at Mass General, was number one, just trying to get a sense what families were taking away from their experience with their loved ones in the critical care environment at Mass General. And then we had a, a separate research question that came up as part of these conversations One of the things that we were particularly curious about uh, was this issue of families potentially receiving mixed messages from different care providers. So I think anecdotally we can all kind of identify with the situation where a family member um, hears one thing about how their loved one is doing from a nurse or from a, a resident, and then perhaps the attending or consultant walks in, and then the story seems to change, at least from the family's perspective. And uh, one of the research questions that we had in conjunction with just trying to assess satisfaction in general was uh, trying to get a feel for how often this sort of phenomenon happens, like, at, at least in our local environment in Boston. So thanks to Perrin and Jonathan, we were able to look at some of these things. We did one uh, study with the FSICU in both the medical ICU and the neuro ICU at Mass General where we looked at metrics of family satisfaction in general. And in, in particular, with this question of these mixed messages, we surveyed families with a homegrown questionnaire regarding their experiences with receiving mixed messages. And we found out that about one in four families responded that they had at least experienced one episode of receiving uh, inconsistent information from different uh, hospital staff during the course of their loved one's admission. And so we, we were able to present that data at the Society of Critical Care Medicine, the Critical Care Congress past
0: January. It's great um, it, it certainly sounds um, reflective I think of many uh, ICUs. I, I just wanted to ask you and I'm sorry to interrupt but the FSICU does that does the does that measure inconsistencies in communication or, or did you say you, you created a, your own tool for, for doing so?
1: It's a great question. So the FSICU has one item so it's you know there's different versions of ICU there's a, a 34 question item there's a 24 question item and survey and the i think i believe that both uh, versions of the survey there's a, there's one question that asked the families to rate you know how consistent they felt the information was from staff from on a likert scale from 1 to 5 and that's uh, basically the extent to which the FSICU assesses consistency it's on the survey but it's it's basically this likert scale and so we we because we had a particular interest in that question we decided to uh, create a, a very very brief uh, survey that that uh, tried to explore this, this phenomenon a little bit more in depth. So we asked about the number of discrete episodes that folks uh, felt like they experienced if, if they reported receiving inconsistent information. We asked when they tended to occur, you know, uh, um, in the hospital stay at the beginning versus the end and such. And then we asked a few questions about how they felt those inconsistent episodes of information, if they happened, how they how they affected their perception of the overall satisfaction and decision-making, their, their satisfaction with decision-making. So with the questionnaire, we we found that in addition to 25% of families reporting at least an episode of inconsistent information, we found that the vast majority of folks reported that these inconsistencies, when they did occur, they tended to occur early in the hospital stay, within the first 48 hours. 75% of our respondents Felt that their, their episode or episodes of receiving inconsistencies happened in that first critical time period, that first two day, those first two days of hospital admission, and then we also found that about uh, one in ten felt like these episodes definitely affected their satisfaction with uh, overall care, and uh, about uh, one in five actually found that they they found that it affected their overall satisfaction with care. And uh, 1 in 10 felt that some sort of aspect of decision-making about their loved one uh, during the hospital stay was made more difficult because they're receiving inconsistent information from, from from the staff, or at least they were perceiving that as such.
0: see. So, yeah, it certainly, uh, again, sounds familiar. And um, uh, some of the most difficult situations in the ICU are often when, uh, the families receiving mixed messages from different consultants, and that can be quite challenging.
1: Before fellowship, I wasn't uh, an expert, you know, in family satisfaction, nor am I now, but through doing reading and preparations for the, the various write-ups and projects that that came from this data, I noticed that a lot of the sort of push, you know, in the critical care community for um, assessing family satisfaction, promoting shared decision-making, a lot of this push comes from the sort of uh, general medical and surgical ICU community, which which is fantastic, but I, I, it was just interesting that it seemed like from a neuro-ICU perspective, a lot of this is seems unexplored. There's data from neuro-ICUs that are mixed in with large ICU cohorts that have been published in the general critical care literature. It You know, given how much shared decision-making comes into play for neurointensivists on a day-to-day basis with trying to prognosticate comas and various neurologic states, you know, we found that at least up until now, there hasn't been too much of a formal spotlight on, on Family satisfaction and uh, decision making research, at least at least from a formal academic perspective.
0: Sure. So, so you, you really began began your work at, at MGH and then continued it as you uh, came on as faculty at Yale. That's that's
1: right. So, when I came to Yale uh, last summer, it was very fortunate, you know, to come into uh, an environment at the Neuro ICU here at Yale, where a lot of the uh, the nursing and physician leadership. Really, really share these these interests and trying to uh, better understand how we can serve families, better understand what their needs and their their terms of satisfaction, and and how we can sort of improve that entire process for them. Another thing that was great about the environment here at Yale that I discovered when I arrived was that we had a, a large uh, cadre of physician assistants and nurse practitioners with a lot of experience here at at Yale in particular. And they, they actually had interest, in know, themselves of getting involved in formal research in in family satisfaction. So we're very eager to sort of get it off the ground. And so, coming in with my previous interest in fellowship and coming into this environment, it was it was a good fit. And you know, as as I began to chat more with the, the nursing leadership and the physician leadership, we determined that we we had hospital metrics that are measured after hospital discharge. For family satisfaction, and I think this is the case for hospitals across the country now, especially with the changes in re- hospital reimbursement with the Affordable Care Act and hospital payments based on satisfaction surveys. Yale is no different in that we had we've had long running data as captured by the HCAPs survey, but those the survey data reflects the entire hospital stay after folks are discharged from the floor, and uh, they specific instructions on those surveys for the patients themselves to fill out and respond to questions about uh, their satisfaction with care as opposed to the families who oftentimes are are maybe experiencing the the ICU care environment perhaps even more than some of the the patients with altered mental status. And so it it seemed like trying to get an accurate measure of, at least locally, what the satisfaction of care was in our neuro-ICU, it seemed like a gap in knowledge that there was a lot of enthusiasm for addressing. And so we talked amongst ourselves in our unit and decided that it was important enough to us that we were going to try to put our uh, collective enthusiasm together and try to collect some data to see where we were at.
0: Great. And, and as I said, you know, it, a lot of this rings, rings quite true for me. We participate in Prescani and, and HCAPS, and it's always been frustrating. There's one or two questions, I think, that deal with the ICU, in at least one of those surveys, but it, it's hard to get real quality data regarding how, how well your ICU is performing in terms of meeting uh, patient and family needs. So as you began this work at Yale, you know, I think there's a, a lot of us would like to uh, implement some sort of a survey tool for engaging family and patient satisfaction. What types of um, resources did you have? And also what types of barriers did you, did you meet? so that perhaps we can glean some knowledge from, from your experience.
1: I think the resources and the barriers, they, they often go hand in hand, <laughs> and, you know, with these sort of initiatives. So I think all of us will be quick to say that um, anytime that you're trying to set up a formal research project, it's great to have external funding to help drive the initiatives, but sometimes uh, the timing just doesn't work out and availability of funding in general is always something that is kind of an ongoing search. So while we were interested in looking for grant options to fund this type of research, we we also knew that we wanted to sort of just try our best to get things off the ground and collect data in the highest quality way that we could just given the collective enthusiasm that our entire unit had from the physicians to the nursing to the the nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And so we knew that when we tried to set things up, at least in this initial stage, of data collection, we needed to try to be as cost-effective but uh, high-quality as possible. And so the, the first thing we decided to do was to define the scope of what types of families we were going to try to focus our data collection for. And so we decided at our unit, this is somewhat based off of literature that's been published in the, the general micu community, we decided to limit our scope to two particular categories of, of families of patients. And those were those who survived their ICU stay, but who are in the unit for some reasonable amount of time. We chose 72 hours. The literature oftentimes has a cutoff for these studies of two days, and we chose three for uh, practicality reasons. And then uh, we also decided as a group to survey all of those families whose family members pass away or who are made comfort measures in the ICU, regardless of the number of days or uh, no matter how brief or long their hospital stay was. And I think what's uh, probably a common theme among a lot of different units who pursue this type of research or who uh, set this up successfully is that it's good to identify local champions for this type of research. From the physician side, from the nursing side, we happen to have very supportive nursing leadership. Kelly Poskus is our nurse manager, and Cindy Batista is our clinical nurse specialist, and they were very much on board with this research project. And having their support and their buy was essential. And I'll say, you know. Uh, crucial to the success here at Yale we've had a nurse practitioner named Jennifer Robinson who's passionate about this type of research and really became a local champion for getting it off the ground and i think having that local champion you know identified at a local at your institution it makes all the difference in the world in terms of making these things work and so the way we did it here at Yale and the way Jennifer set things up, was that we we first identified a a cohort of uh, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants who were interested in helping with the data collection effort. And then we essentially uh, devised a call system, a a daily call system for the group for recruiting the uh, types of families that described earlier. The idea was that when a member of the team was on call for that particular day, they would be fully responsible for the recruitment and for the survey gathering. And the, this call system set up on a group calendar that we have online, and we have folks sign up for dates in advance. And so that way, we, uh, in, in advance of any particular week, we have all the days covered and so that the study can actually run continuously without any one team member having to essentially do all the work.
0: So, we, uh, so in terms of recruitment and uh, involvement of the survey, what, is, what are the, is that person actually doing? Mm-hmm.
1: There's a number of things. There's the survey itself. We actually have the survey programmed into an online webpage so that when the person who's on call identifies families who meet our enrollment criteria, they seek out that family, consent the family, and then actually set the family up with our study laptop that has the survey built into it, and what's nice about the way we have things set up is that when the family takes the survey through the computer, once they're done with the survey, it automatically gets imported into a spreadsheet for later analysis. So this one method of efficiency we've found to try to streamline the the call responsibilities is that a, a person is not necessarily taking a paper survey and trying to input it by hand after the survey is collected. Now, what I will say is that we're also, as part of this research initiative, we we also like to have a little information about not just the families themselves, some demographic, basic demographic information about the families that we're enrolling, but we, we like to have some demographic information about the patients so that when it comes time to analysis, we can at least have an idea of what our population, our cohort baseline characteristics are. And so... The person who's on call is also responsible for uh, looking through a medical record and also abstracting for the medical record some very basic but important aspects about patients who are being enrolled. things that you would uh, typically think of for these types of studies age, sex, gender diag- ethnicity, diagnosis, uh, length of stay and such and that's the way we have things set up for folks on call and uh, I'll say that this is the way we have this is the way we're collecting data for those who are surviving to the end of discharge. We, we take a different approach for those folks who whose uh, family members unfortunately pass away during the admission. And uh, what we do is we, um, instead of trying to find the family member in real time um, while they're in the, the hospital, we, we give them at least a month. And then uh, we, we actually mail them a survey, a paper survey, that they can return to us just to give them some time to, to grieve and to respect the loss of their loved one. And, and it's in that way that we're collecting data you now both types of patients, both types of family groups.
0: In your experience, the number of both the two different categories of patients, the survey response rate for each group, is it high, low?
1: For the in-house patients, we're doing about 55 to 60% terms of response rate and that's for all that's when you factor in uh, all the folks in our unit who would uh, you know strictly fulfill our enrollment criteria mm-hmm. we have given ourselves a 48hour window both pre and post ICU discharge so that uh, our team has a little bit of flexibility and when we when we are able to meet with families so what I mean by that is that if you know, the idea is to try to uh, collect this information on day of discharge but if it means uh, finding someone you know on the hospital floor, uh, a day or two after discharge that's okay for our purposes and we've been able to bat around 50-60% using this team on call approach the mail surveys are a lower response rate They're, right now it's probably around 30 to 40% and Looking at previous studies that have been published, it seems that some centers have incorporated a courtesy phone call that uh, precedes the letter in the mail, and that's something that we're uh, actively thinking about uh, incorporating into our protocol here. Currently, the way we have it is the survey is accompanied by a letter expressing our condolences on behalf of the ICU, and there's a possibility we may try to incorporate a courtesy phone call in the future to try to, uh, to boost that enrollment rate. That's
0: interesting. And the group of folks that are responsible for recruiting the family members of survivors, who makes up that group? Is it nurses, doctors, NPs?
1: So it's mostly uh, NPs, physician assistants, and nurses. We have a cohort of about six or seven in our unit who are enthusiastic about the research, and so they are the ones who primarily make up the cohort. We've, we've recently recruited also some uh, physician assistant students to help in particular with the mailing of the surveys to those who, are, who passed away or who made comfort measures um, to help with that data collection, too. But the team is primarily made up of interested nurses and physician assistant nurse practitioners.
0: Great. All that information is, uh, is very helpful, and uh, hopefully our listeners find it as well, so as well.
1: I think it's built a, it's been a good experience, I think, for a unit, not just about the data itself, which is interesting and important, but even from a just a multidisciplinary camaraderie perspective, it's been nice to have a joint research initiative that, that the nursing staff, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners have ownership over, that all of our neuro-intensivists and neurosurgeons are aware of study and supportive. It. It's, it's been a good team-building experience.
0: I've had... Um I don't know if, if this became an issue uh, for you. Uh, at times, hospital administration is concerned about the number of surveys uh, that go to um, patients and families. And I don't know if that came up in, in your implementation, um, any concerns about over surveying?
1: It's really interesting as, uh, that you bring that up. So, so to answer your question, I guess, first off, at Yale so far, that, that hasn't been an issue, thankfully, here. You guys, as I said, I think we, we've actually, our hospital administration, definitely aware of the initiative in our unit, and I think it's nice actually to have complementary information about a specific unit compared to these sort of general Press Prescani scores that the hospital administration is used to looking at and always trying to sort of interpret in the best way. It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, sort of this issue with multiple surveys. When we were doing this project at Mass General, when I was a fellow, we bundled a number of different surveys, the FSICU, this homegrown communication survey. That I mentioned earlier. I didn't mention this up front, but we bundled in, you know, a copy of the uh, Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale, you know, in uh, yeah. with 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 that study. And it, it was it was interesting in that we actually found that the the order that you put the surveys in in the packet makes a difference in terms of response rate, which is. Probably not surprising, but it sort of demonstrates this possibility of survey fatigue yeah. and, and the need to be judicious, you know, in terms of setting priorities, I think, when, in terms of what you, your particular unit may be interested in, in assessing. So we actually felt we actually had this HADS, this Hospital Anxiety Depression Scale, this 14 item, very well validated questionnaire for looking for these mood disorder symptoms within patients or families. We, we had this at the end of our packet, you know, whereas the FSICU beginning and there's actually a 10% drop in the response rate with the hospital anxiety depression from what we could determine was really just based on the fact that the questions came later you know in the, the survey process and so when we when we decided to set things up at Yale you know um, uh, we, we're obviously interested in these specific issues such as this consistency of communication and and these specific family experience issues but we decided to start things off just using this FSICU instrumented just for simplicity's sake to begin with and you know that may change as far as our unit's our research interests you know evolve but certainly this point that you bring up is it's an important one that the group at least our group in Boston experienced in in a very real way
0: interesting and so at Yale are you using just the FSICU24
1: currently at Yale we're we're using just the FSICU24 we we have a few with just the, the families we have an additional questionnaire that we administer with the FSICU, but it's really just demographics. It's, they're not additional satisfaction questions or questions about, you know, the specific experience. We have added a couple of free response questions to our survey just based on the initial data that rolled in from the FSICU. We found, for example, I imagine this is not specific DL, you know, but we we found that the waiting room in particular did not receive very high marks, and so we we added in, you know, our, our own specific free response section to the survey just to ask folks to tell us exactly why it is that the waiting room. It could be improved. And we've we've tweaked the survey in this sort of fashion, you know, try to get more information about the local Yale environment. But besides those free response questions as well as some demographic information asking about things that one would be interested in a research study, for example, you know, um, folks' level of education, whether or not folks have been in an ICU before, these sorts of demographic questions. We've chosen mainly to focus on the FSICU 24.
0: For, for those who actually um, might not be that familiar with the uh, various satisfaction tools, can you just outline for us a little bit what the FSICU 24 is uh, and why in particular you uh, chose that tool to measure satisfaction in your ICU? Absolutely. I'd be
1: happy to. So, so this actually came up when we were trying to set things up here at Yale. A number of different members of the care team had different experience with different family, family satisfaction surveys. And so the, the question of choosing which survey to use came up and there's a number of different satisfaction surveys that have been validated to different degrees. In addition to the FSICU, there is one called the uh, Critical Care Family Needs Inventory which has been used a lot more, primarily in nursing literature. It's probably been the one that's that's been around the longest since you know the late '70s, early '80s, and really really came out of uh, of nursing research. Uh, that's a 14 question study that surveys general satisfaction with critical care. There's another uh, survey, the Critical Care Family Satisfaction Survey, or the CCFSS, that's also been used in literature and that has uh, been extensively validated. Why we chose to use the FSICU, which may be familiar to some, but not all, it's definitely the instrument that's, it's probably been the one that's been involved in the most literature over the past 10 years or so. And we selected the FSICU or the Family Satisfaction ICU uh, instrument, uh, mostly because it has a particular focus on shared decision making. So the 24-item version, which is the version that we're using, the first 14 items of the questionnaire focus on satisfaction with overall care and has uh, general questions about you know, how, for example, how the the team is managing your loved one's pain, agitation, whether or not you feel that the team is compassionate, this issue of the waiting room, as I brought up earlier, general uh, aspects of care. But after those 14 questions, there are 10 questions on the survey that really drill down on aspects of shared decision-making and the family's experience of it, so things that, that are looked at in detail include the frequency of communication by ICU doctors, the ease of getting information, understanding how how easy the information was to understand, how honest folks felt the information being given to them was for decision making. Uh, I mentioned consistency earlier, that's an item, uh, how complete the information is and 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 how supported, included, and how, how much in control uh, family members felt they were of the care they received. And I think when the initial authors of the FSICU, uh, Darren Halen's group in Canada, when they initially put the survey together, and then when it was later revised by Richard Wall and and Jay Randall Curtis's group in Seattle, they they really wanted to, uh, you know a survey that really tried to capture these aspects of you know shared decision making in ICU, since it's just so important to the day to um, day you know family interactions that we have as intensivists. And so um, that's the reason we ended up choosing it, to have focus. And the, the way these items are set up, for the most part, is that they're, the most of them are, are graded on a five-point Likert scale, and different groups have used different ways of sort of quantifying information. So you can look at the Likert scale data in and it of itself. What most groups have found is that a lot of folks, thankfully, a lot of folks do respond with the highest Likert scale uh, rating. And so a lot of groups uh, simply dichotomize. Their results, meaning that they, they look at whether or not folks rate, you know, for example, a five. If five is the highest, whether or not you're rating a five versus not a five, and that's one way to sort of look at your data from a binary perspective. And that's that's the way we've chosen to look at our data so far, at least with the small studies that we've done. Um, I think it's also um, the way that CMS, the Center for Medicare, is looking at HCAP scores. They're looking at this. They're looking at their data in, in a dichotomized way, even though the HCAP scores themselves have a Likert scale as well. And so. We feel that this approach mirrors
0: that. Right. For for those who are familiar with that it's a top box uh, phenomenon. of You only get credit for, for the top score, right? That's right. So I guess you've been doing this for a little while at Yale. Can you tell us uh, what you've found so far and perhaps what types of interventions you've either done or are planning?
1: Sure. I'd be, I'd be happy to. Overall, like, you know, our satisfaction data... I think it mirrors well, what's been found with FSICUs studies in the past, and you know our, our data from a neuroscience ICU mirrors that coming from the medical and general surgical ICU studies. And that is, you know, in general, folks tend to rate the shared decision-making experience overall. They tend to rate low on the Likert scale these items regarding the shared decision-making compared to the general aspect of the general aspects of critical care. And so we found the same here in our neuro ICU
0: that the numbers are a
1: bit lower for those ten questions overall uh, on the FSICU, and so I think that just sort of speaks to this importance of general care, critical care community and also the neurocritical care community as we try to find ways of just trying to improve that shared decision-making process. That's just a, a daily part of, of our lives. We've done some focused studies, particular questions that we had in our unit, so we, we were fortunate to have a little bit of data. That was done by uh, one of our nurses, Anna Coppola. That was done three or four years ago, really before our uh, ICU had a full-time a cohort of neurointensivists. Before a few years ago at Yale, we had intensivists by committee, group of you know, Mickey physicians that would rotate and, and consult on the critically ill um, uh, neurosurgical patients and neurology patients and such. And it was a couple of years ago that we had a full-time a cohort of dedicated neurointensivists to essentially uh, turn the neuro ICU into. I guess one could call it a closed unit. And so uh, we found from comparing the family satisfaction data from, you know, Anna's work a few years ago to, to now that uh, fortunately at least the group of neurointensivists has come in. There seems to be a trend towards increased satisfaction with the care that family members uh, receive in our unit, which, which is a good thing. It wasn't uh, 100% statistically significant, but the trend was definitely in that direction. And so we, we found that reassuring in our local environment as we try to assess you know, how changes in the staffing structure uh, were making an impact with the care not only our patients but our families receive. And, uh, you know, over the past few months, we've submitted a number of abstracts to different meetings. We just presented one abstract, a poster at the Neurocritical Care Society meeting, where we actually looked at our data, our satisfaction data uh, between those patients, the families of those patients who were primarily on a neurosurgical service versus uh, those families of patients who are primarily on a neurology service or a neuro, I should say a neuro-intensivist service. And what we actually found was that the, the families of those patients who were primarily on neurosurgical services with the neurosurgery attending as they attending a record actually had a statistically significant increase in the amount of satisfaction they had with emotional support compared to those on the neuro service, which is interesting. To interpret that data, I'll, I'll say that, you know, um, on neurointensivists, we essentially see well, nearly all of the neurosurgical patients in consultation. And while, you know, the neurosurgical attendings are the attendings of record, we as, as neurointensivists, salt and, and for the most part, basically run all the critical care issues for those patients during the course of the typical day. And so it was a little bit eye-opening us to see that. But it was actually those families with the neurosurgeons' as primary attending who actually were statistically significantly rating higher, you know, emotional support on the FSICU. We we thought a little bit about it and looking at and this is where the demographics, the families, and the patients come in handy when you're trying to interpret data like this. We found that one big difference between the neurology and the neurosurgical patients as a whole is that the neur- neurosurgical patients, they tend to be in the ICU for much, much longer, and and that's primarily because of the subarachnoid hemorrh- uh, hemorrhages that are admitted to the neurosurgeon service. They get admitted, and they're essentially in the unit, the high-grade ones, are almost automatically in the unit for at least two weeks based on the, the need for monitoring potential spasm, And so in, during that time, they receive a lot of attention from the neurosurgeons and certainly from the neurointensivists, our team. So I think there's there, there's a lot of different factors that can account for why the cohort of, of families on the neurosurgical service might experience the emotional support differently. but But nevertheless, we found that was an interesting finding. Another study that we have put together for the upcoming Critical Care Congress is uh, we we wanted to look at whether or not families with experience in ICUs before, whether or not they perceived or experienced uh, more or less satisfaction with the shared decision making process than those families who were coming in with no prior ICU experience, no primer, no prior uh, experience as a family member in the ICU, and we took a look at that data too, that comparison among our cohort, and we found that Yale. It doesn't seem to really matter whether or not you've had ICU experience in the past, from a family perspective, with regards to um, satisfaction with basic aspects of shared decision making. That includes, you know, understanding information that's given to you, your perception of emotional support, how consistent you feel the information is that's being given to you. It seems that even with prior ICU experience, folks tend to re- report the s- similar levels of satisfaction, which we found interesting as well.
0: Interesting. You know, I'm just thinking about the. Uh... The neurosurgeons versus the neurointensivists. Certainly, I know from our hospital data, proceduralists uh, tend to have higher ratings uh, on the uh, HCAP scores in Prescani than non-proceduralists. A big part of my world is um, is trauma care, and uh, there's a there's a bunch of uh, little studies that suggest that trauma patients and their families, as a whole, tend to rate lower in terms of uh, satisfaction, perhaps based on emergency uh, or, or sudden illness uh, rather than more planned elective illness. But right. I'm sure there's a lot of different reasons why uh, yeah we see those differences.
1: Right, right, yeah. We were uh, a little surprised to see the results here, but I think it's been informative <laughs> for our, you know our group, especially as we sort of move forward and think about which direction we want to take things. One thing I want to mention up front, too, is that Our nurses had the opportunity, since it's a collaborative effort for this data collection and analysis, we've had one nurse in particular, Megan Kennedy, who's actually actually submitted her own abstract based off the data to the National Teaching Institute Conference for the uh, American Association of Critical Care Nursing. And so it's been nice to not only have the data collection be a multidisciplinary effort, but to have the analysis and the conclusion drawing the research portion that the meat of the research from the project also be multidisciplinary as well. It's been great. And so as we were currently, um, you asked about interventions, we're currently talking amongst ourselves, meaning the the neurointensivists, the neurosurgeons, the nursing leadership, about what might be the sort of most effective interventions to test now that we have this data collection that's still ongoing on a daily basis here. We've been talking about the possibility of, we already have actually um, as many units, I believe, Uh, do now across the country. We have families. Families are welcome to attend morning rounds and are are welcome to stand in as the plan is being created during multidisciplinary morning rounds. We've been debating amongst ourselves whether or not we should institute uh, scheduled family rounds, dedicated family rounds in the afternoon, in the afternoons where the neurointensivist who's on service would have an advertised time that's made clear to all the family members where they'd walk around and, and actually see all the patients and and at least meet and greet everyone, you know, so that folks feel like, so that families can really uh, feel that neurointensive, at least get a sense of that neurointensive presence. And you know, if any deeper family discussion, shared decision making needs to occur, you know, those family meetings can clearly be, can obviously be scheduled as they, as they need to be. But trying to institute a, an advertised protocol such as that is something that we're talking amongst ourselves as a potential intervention, and we'll we'll see how how those discussions go as as the as the whole project evolves.
0: That's great. I, you know, I congratulate you on um, and your team on implementing a satisfaction survey to get your baseline data, and certainly look forward to more results and hope that you can find some interventions um, that do improve family satisfaction that we can all
1: share. Yeah, you know, I appreciate it, and, and the the one thing I'll I'll end with too, you know, is that we really again we really appreciate that Project Dispatch and the Society uh, making possible this opportunity for us to share with folks uh, sort of nuts and bolts of uh, how we've been trying to get this research off the ground here at Yale. And anyone who's listening to this podcast, you know, has an interest or a desire to collaborate on on multi-center initiatives. We're we're certainly very receptive and open here at Yale. I think that a lot of family satisfaction research, you know, you see a lot of large series that come out of uh, single institutions. But I think to try to get multi-center cohorts, you know, either in neurointensive care or just in critical care in general, I think what would, would always be helpful as we try to think about how to approach these things together. And so I'll, I appreciate the fact that Project Dispatch is making this podcast available, and we look forward to collaborating with other interested units in the future.
0: Sure, and thank you for that. I might uh, certainly take you up on that in terms of how you de- designed your website uh, for the survey tool. So. Yep. So, thanks. It's really been great speaking with you. Um, I know I have learned a lot, and I, I'm sure our listeners uh, have learned a lot about satisfaction surveys in the in the ICU and, and how, how to implement them. And I think you've certainly shared a lot of information that will be very helpful.
1: I appreciate it. Uh, thanks again, uh, Michael. I appreciate this this time.
0: Thank you. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.stcm.org iCritical Care for more information. You can now also find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein.
2: Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the Eye Critical Care podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is Associate Professor of Surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is Director of the Surgical ICU and Executive Medical Co-Director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved